We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And part of the dignity of humanity is that we have our own internal sense of what's right and wrong. All of us have the capability and responsibility to stand up for doing the right thing. Now, in direct contrast to authoritarian dictatorships where individuals are expected to surrender their own sense of right and wrong to authority from above, in a democracy, we assume that individuals in society will take personal responsibility and, as citizens, will rely on their own sense of right and wrong. One of the key outcomes of the Nuremberg trials at the end of the Second World War was that we expect and demand that people listen to their own moral compass and refuse to obey unjust, immoral orders. Some 70 years after that, very clear lesson was taught to all humanity. We've seen such recent horrors as torture in the Abu Ghraib prison, corporate fraud in the Vietnam War. Many atrocities were committed by Americans just following orders, when the whole point of the Nuremberg trials was that that phrase is no defense at all. Why is it that so many people put their own sense of right and wrong aside and just don't have it in them to say no to their higher-ups? Why is it that people so easily do harm to other human beings just because they are told to? And why is it that people have such a hard time saying no to higher-ups, even though they know what they are being told to do is wrong? The book we'll discuss today on Keeping Democracy Alive is called Intelligent Disobedience, Doing Right When What You're Told to Do is Wrong. Our guest is author Ira Chalef. Thanks for being with us, Ira. Uh, You're welcome, Bert. Uh, Appreciate your framing of the issue there. Ira Chalif has been named one of the 100 Best Minds in Leadership by Leadership Excellence Magazine, and in addition to teaching at Georgetown University, he is author of The Courageous Follower, Standing Up to and For Our Leaders. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Ira. I understand the title of the book, Intelligent Disobedience, Doing Right When What You're Told to Do is Wrong, actually relates to a concept used in guide dog training. Tell us, if you would, please, about that inspiration. I was teaching a class a number of years ago to mid-level government managers, and it's about leadership and followership based on my book, The Courageous Follower. We, at some point in the class, we always discuss the relationship to authority, pretty much as you framed it. Most of the time, 
It makes sense to comply with what you're being asked to do or told to do. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's even dangerous to do that. And we have to create a distinction as civil servants or as citizens. A woman in the class raised her hand and said, I have an example of this under the desk. Well, that got my attention. Under the desk, she had a dog. The dog was sitting very quietly for an hour, an hour and a half. And she explained that she was training this dog to be a guide dog for someone who was blind. And for the first 16 months of the dog's life, it stayed with her to learn everything it needed to know, to be socialized, to be able to stay quietly in busy situations, and to obey all the commands that we need to know. She said then it had to go to a higher level trainer to teach it intelligent disobedience. Well, I said, what's that? Never heard that. And that is the, uh, the ability to discern when a command is given, for example, to cross the street, when a hybrid car is coming around the corner and the person who's blind doesn't hear it, the dog must know not to obey and must know how to resist obeying. Hmm. And if it can't create that distinction, it cannot be a guide dog. And I thought that is a wonderful metaphor for what we as human beings need to learn how to do. So if we see danger, that I, it, training that dog to do that and to have its own sense of right and wrong, wow, that, that's very interesting. I, you know, I, I'm always impressed by dogs, but to ha- I wonder how they do that. That's a remarkable uh, knowledge for the dog to have. It is, Bert. I, I was equally fascinated. And I had the good uh, fortune to be able to go to the oldest uh, guide dog training school in the U.S., up in uh, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and to have uh, the CEO who is blind and uh, the gentleman who trains all of the trainers and all of the dogs uh, to walk me through how do they do this. And it's interesting because, you know, they say, well, there's no secret sauce. But when you really look carefully and deconstruct what they're doing, there is a quote-unquote secret sauce that could be transferred hmm. to human development. For example, really? uh, praise is very important. When the dog does something right, they always praise it, always praise it, always praise it. When it does something wrong, they have an equal way of saying, uh, they don't use the word no, because no is too common in the English language, mm-hmm. so they use the word fui, fui. <laughs> ah. um, but, but the point is this, the, the, the key thing I walked away from, uh, from that uh, observation is they must not confuse the dog. The dog can't become confused as to when should I obey, when shouldn't I obey. Mm. They have to understand the principles. So the way you develop that is gradually. You put them in simple situations where they need to disobey, and you get it until they can do that. Then more complex situations. And then into situations where not only do they have to disobey, Mm -hmm. but they have to problem-solve to figure out a safe solution. Uh, for example, this construction suddenly and the blind person can't maneuver safely through it. The dog has to find a way not for the dog. The dog can get through right. over and under things, sure. but for the team. And again, I think that's just a, a, a wonderful metaphor 
And I think it's very consciously developing a skill set that I think we could and need to do better in human beings. Boy, I guess we do. And I've <clears throat> been in politics for quite a while and run for office and won. And I've always found that dogs have a great sense of who's a good person and who's not. If they only had thumbs, maybe they could vote. I think that would be a good thing. Why, how did you, what's your purpose in, in writing this book, Intelligent Disobedience, Doing Right When You're Told to Do Wrong? How did it come about? Well, let, let me uh, give you the, the personal narrative background. I was raised in a multi-generational family, and my a maternal grandmother lost her entire family, except for one niece that she was able to get out of Nazi Germany. She lost her entire family. And it was in uh, New York City in summertime, humid, pre-air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And when friends would come over to the house, I would, uh, as a kid, of course, be transfixed with, why did some of them have numbers tattooed on their arms? Of course, these were the concentration camp survivors. Right. And I wasn't allowed to talk about that. I wasn't allowed to ask those questions. And it took me a while to piece together the... Uh, crime that had happened, mass crime. And uh, from a very early age, I became um, deeply interested in how does that happen? How do people follow destructive leaders? And what could we do about it? So you roll forward decades, and I did various things and made my own mistakes and, you know, learned things. And I came to Washington, D.C. So like you, I was suddenly in a political world. And I began to see, uh, gee, this is interesting, 20-something-year-old staff working with 40 or 50 or 60-year-old members of Congress have to learn how to help the boss do the right thing, not make a, not make a mistake mm. where they're going to get hit by a car. So I started to look at the power differentials, the skill sets, and that's uh, how I came to write the book, The Courageous Follower, Standing Up to and For our leaders. You have to be able to do both if you're going to be effective, help them use power well and not abuse power. And that's the thing as citizens in a democracy, we have a responsibility to do the right thing, to check in with our own own moral compass. And that's one thing that that freedom requires, really, is responsibility. And in the foreword to your book, uh, Philip Zimbardo, creator of something called the Stanford Prison Experiment, and that was uh, a role-playing in which people became uh, prison guards. They became cruel and sadistic toward prisoner subjects. Anyway, this uh, author, Philip Zimbardo, uh, expresses concern that despite the 50 years since his findings were released, he said, humanity is no closer to having absorbed the lessons of these experiments. What, what are we missing in this? And, and what specifically in that does your book seek to address? Yeah, this is a great question. You know, Phil Zimbardo and Stanley Milgram uh, at Yale, who did um, the classic experiments on obedience, um, their basic observations, thing they learned that they really demonstrated through very well-constructed experiments was that it's more situational than what they call dispositional. What do I mean by that? Yes. Um, Any of us, regardless of our disposition to do the right thing, put in a certain situation with certain pressures, 
uh, will be prone to not doing the right thing. So they were very, very effective at describing these dynamics. And Milgram went further, and I can talk more about that, into also describing ways that the social situation could be constructed to reduce inappropriate obedience. But what they didn't do was then take that to the next step of, okay, how do, what do we do about this right. developmentally? And this is where I feel, and where Phil Zimbardo got very excited, to, you know, which I was very pleased to see, that this concept of, uh, of training people for intelligent disobedience can be the missing link. In other words, disobedience thing is pretty hardwired in to all cultures. And to create the balance for that, obviously we need to be able to obey when it's appropriate, right. but to create the balance for that, that has to be done more consciously, more assertively, more proactively, and it's, it's not being done very much. And I'm hoping that this book starts that dialogue and gives people um, some directions in which we can go to form that foundation that balances out this proclivity to obey. And ob- obedience is, is key to any military situation, and one can easily think of many, many uh, situations in war where the orders are, frankly, insane. They are requiring the troops, the ground troops, the followers, the people who obey, to commits mass suicide. We've seen that at Gallipoli in the First World War and, and many, many different uh, situations where, where commanders were just plain nuts. And, and, but to, to rebel against that is very, very hard. It's called mutiny. <laughs> and you can be shot for that, you know, be uh, uh, put to death for, for committing mutiny. How does, you know, you have to obey in a military, uh, even, even if it's insane orders. How does what you found in writing your book perhaps apply to those situations? That's got to be exceedingly difficult. Sure. Uh, you know, I, when, when you describe this uh, Gallipoli-type situation, uh, you know, one of my favorite songs is Pete Seeger's song, uh, The Big Money. Oh, yes. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, where the captain keeps telling them to cross when this argument is saying, no, no, don't cross there. And it's too deep, and the captain goes ahead anyway, and he drowns, and the sergeant then takes everybody across it safely. So even in military situations, boy, the, uh, uh, when, when officers expect total obedience, they pay a price. In fact, uh, I do a lot of work with the military. I'm very, very interesting. pleased with how receptive the military have been to this idea of courageous followership. Um, you're absolutely right. Historically, it, things really are different now uh, in so many ways, which is fascinating. Because, uh, you know, let, let, let's forget about the big picture of, of war itself, but within that construct, uh, you know, if we assume that there is such a thing as a just war, that the body, it's the equivalent of the body having white blood cells, you know, to defend itself, if we accept those premises, then the question is, how do we, con- we, we conduct war? And first of all, the military code is very clear that, uh, that a soldier is under no obligation to uh, obey an illegal order 
and in fact, you know, they can be held culpable. Now, that doesn't make it easy to disobey an illegal order. And you're raising a situation where it's not necessarily illegal. Right. It could just be a very poor order. Yeah. So uh, I have an example in The Craigslist Follower of a soldier who was given orders to fire on a certain uh, point. And he looked carefully, and he felt that though there were elements of our own troops there. So he refused to obey the order. And um, despite being, you know, it being repeated, well, he was brought before a hearing, and the hearing found that he was right. It was our own troops there, and if he had fired, he would have, you know, killed our his own, you know, comrades, if you will, by friendly fire. And instead of disciplining him, they awarded him a medal. So it, you know, uh-huh. there there's courage in. You have to be right. That's you know, that's the hard. Yeah. Thing. But there's courage in taking a stand, and more and more these days. Um, even in military circles, at least you know the ones I've been exposed to in the U.S., there's an appreciation for that. Courage to take a stand, you know, that applies, I think, across the board. If we are to maintain a democracy at all, people are, uh, you know, they're not supposed to just follow orders. That's a different kind of government. That's authoritarian, you know, be it uh, fascist or Soviet fascist or whatever. That's not a democracy. We have to do make intelligent choices and and many people i think see simply employing rationality as part of the answer to a lot of problems yet otherwise rational adults so often obey irrational rules and commands where does rationality fit into resolving this dilemma is there any i mean does it play a role at all well i, I yes um, I, I believe it must but unfortunately, um, rationalization, which is different than reality, oh, yes. mm-hmm. um, is very, very powerful. So, for example, in the uh, classic experiments on obedience done by Stanley Milgram at Yale, where people thought that they were administering electric shocks and yes. they got very uncomfortable about doing so, but they kept doing so. Yes. Um, the rationalization was that this was an experiment which had a social value. The social value, supposedly, um, was to determine if uh, learning could be accelerated and improved through the use of pain. Okay, crazy assumption, but nevertheless, it had just enough um, plausibility that people said, oh, well, I guess they know what they're doing. I I, I keep going. So it's, it's what I have found, and I talk about this a lot in intelligent disobedience, is that there's, there are steps that we go through internally when confronted with these orders that mm-hmm. feel are not right. Mm-hmm. And we have to learn more about those steps and where we can interrupt the rationalization, that uh, the slippery slope that finds us obeying and implementing these orders when early on our antenna was already up that we shouldn't. Interesting. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, we're, we're looking at a very uh, important aspect of it is uh, intelligent disobedience, doing right when what you're told to do is wrong. Our guest is author Ira Chalif. Chalif. Okay. Um, and civil disobedience, 
you know, has always been an important part of making real change. People really participating, really making improvements in our history, being brave, taking great risks sometimes. But you, you distinguish between intelligent disobedience and civil disobedience. I'm curious about that. Yeah, it's an important distinction. Um, I, of course, have great admiration for the brave souls who use civil disobedience to bring attention to social injustice, to um, laws and regulations that violate deeper principles of freedom and justice. Um, And we have a great tradition in this country of this. Of course, we know Thoreau articulated it um, sort of in a seminal way, and a lot of people have built on it. Nevertheless, um, intelligent, I mean, civil disobedience is only going to be exercised by a very, very small minority. Uh-huh. And I think that our society, our freedom, uh, really would be better served if a larger uh, swath of the population of the citizenry uh, took stands that perhaps were short of civil disobedience, but nevertheless were corrective to the inappropriate use authority. So what's the distinction? Well, the distinction is in in civil disobedience, you're publicly violating usually a law to bring attention to its injustice and with the uh, aim of changing the the law itself, and you're willing to accept the consequences Mm -hmm. of your action. In intelligent disobedience, it's a smaller, it's a narrow act. It's basically saying, um, the law itself is reasonable. It's not perfect. Uh, but the authority figure who is telling me to do something within the law is interpreting it in a damaging way, and I'm not going to follow that. And so it's not a system-changing act, but it is a, a, a refusal to co- condone, collaborate, be complicit with. And in small ways, what my belief is, is uh, if enough of us develop that capacity, then we change the dynamics where those with formal authority pay more attention because they know people aren't going to be walking Mm -hmm. sheep-like in whatever direction they're instructing them to. Wow, that would be a good thing uh, to to learn, and that, that's it's good to point out that uh, difference and that uh, what intelligent disobedience is as compared to civil disobedience. You know, it seems like it's more on the individual level, which is important. Uh, you tell the story of a nurse who was given an order to administer a drug she knew would be fatal. How did she avoid explicitly obeying? and disobeying her orders. Do you, do you think this strategy that she came up with could work in other situations? Yeah, it's a very interesting example. It actually, um, this was told to me when I was teaching Courageous Followership, so 20 years before Intelligent Disobedience uh, but, uh, was published, but it's really the classic example. So uh, nurse, fresh out of nursing school, uh, working in an emergency room, a uh, cardiac patient is brought in. The attending physician orders her to administer a drug, and she's startled, almost horrified. This is, she was taught that you don't use this drug in that situation. 
that it could worsen or even, you know, even kill the patient. Um, so just, you know, for a moment, I ask readers to, to put themselves in that situation, you know, with the power differential and the yeah. time compression, what's at stake and what do you do? And she said, I don't know where I got, you know, the courage to do this, but I said, doctor, um, I don't think that's the right thing to do. I was taught, you know, that that is not what we should do. And he said, you just do it. And he, you know, rushed off to deal with other emergencies. So she was in this, you know, crucible, if you will. And what she did was she set up the IV, she injected the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the drug that he had uh, prescribed, and then she called him over. And she said, um, it's all ready to go, but uh, my training tells me that this is not right. So if you are sure it's right, you will need to open the valve. And that was enough to stop him. To, so he rethought about it, prescribed something else, and it had a happy ending. You know, the patient recovered. But, um, it, it, you know, it took such poise on her part. And, and people do that naturally from time to time, but not enough. And that's where I think that we need to take a serious look in society at how do we change this. Now, fortunately, hospitals are doing a better job at this now, uh, where, you know, pre-surgery and post-surgery, um, they have now put in protocols where everyone from the lowest person in that operating room has to give their verbal consent and they have to speak it, not just nod their head, for the operation to start and mm. complete. And that, that has reduced uh, medical error uh, quite a bit. So ha- my question oh, is, yeah. how do we put this kind of balance to authority into all areas of our culture? Fascinating. I can imagine uh, the insurance industry might be kind of interested in, in applying that knowledge because they don't like uh, you know having to pay for uh, medical malpractice suits. Uh, it could be more of that uh, you know system there that, Sounds like a good thing. Just never mind doing the right thing. It would save them a lot of money. <laughs> great point, Bert. It really is. <laughs> uh, get the system working with you to do the right thing. <laughs> Could happen every now and then. Well, yeah. g- moving from a, a medical situation to an elementary school situation, tell us about Susan Bowles. She was an elementary school teacher in Gainesville, Florida, who risked her job to stand up against standardized testing. A lot of people don't like standardized testing. How did her disobedience end up being of benefit? And, and how could you know, something like that be uh, useful? Yes, yeah, she's a very interesting example because she's kind of straddling the line between intelligent disobedience and civil disobedience mm-hmm. in, in, in that there, you know, there was a state law in Florida that um, this battery of tests had to be administered, and she was teaching uh, second graders, and there was one test uh, called the FAIR test, I forget what the acronym stands for, but she found it a particularly um, onerous test to to be preparing two-year-olds for. It took so much time, and it took away from the fundamentals that she felt was her obligation as a teacher to be instilling in, in these not only the basic skills, but the love of learning. And she thought long and hard, and she used social media, which, of course, is a very powerful tool these days, mm-hmm. uh, and did put her job in line. But she wrote to the parents of uh, her students and said, um, 
you know, you may hear about this, but um, I, I, I am going to be uh, complying with the other test. In other words, she wasn't completely rejecting testing. But this test is one test too many, and I have taken a stand, and I won't be uh, implementing it. So I'm letting you know, and if <laughs> you know, if you no longer find me here, you'll you'll know what happened. Mm. Well, interestingly enough, that generated so much support uh, that the state changed uh, the test requirements for that test. So that was a great example of taking a stand. And, of course, that doesn't always work. I, I can think of situations. I have a lot of friends who are teachers, and, uh, you know, they're very oftentimes reluctant to, to rock the boat. And as a result, oftentimes the child's education suffers because of, you know, over-testing and because of principals and other people in authority who may be, you know, a bit out of touch. And... That's the dynamic we're dealing with, I think, as to you know what the teachers know is right, what what the benefits and risk are, because as you mentioned, she was concerned that she might not have a job. It's a very, it seems like kind of a, a fine line. And go ahead. Let's stay with that for a moment, because uh, we have an even more contemporary example of this that I think uh, is really instructive about the subject of intelligent disobedience. Um, we saw what happened in Atlanta, uh, where something like, uh, was it 11 school teachers and administrators all received jail sentences for doing things that crossed the line and trying to get the test scores into an acceptable range for the school. And by the way, right. this is not an isolated situation in Atlanta. For it sure. has happened all across country. Absolutely. And when, when uh, asked why did they do that, and, and, and this made headlines because it was shocking that teachers would get a jail sentence for this. And the judge then, I, I think he stepped back and, and uh, lessened many of the sentences. But nevertheless, there is there's some jail time and some serious penalties. Um, and, and they said, well, they were afraid of losing their jobs. Sure. Now, we can all identify with that. But that is that is the crucial piece. When we're asked to do something that crosses a line, and we realize that by saying no, we could uh, incur a, an immediate short-term yeah. painful penalty. Yeah. We need to balance that out with the question of what about the long-term penalty? If I do cross this line, uh, what does that do to my professional credentials and, you know, and, and maybe even, you know, to uh, my record in, in terms of, uh, you know, police record. We've seen this happen repeatedly where people fall into this trap. That's what happened at WorldCom when the accountants were pressured to fudge the books and did it, you know, month after month because they were afraid to lose their job and instead went to jail. So what I'm trying to do in the book is help people to step back and say, let's weigh up the risks, and let's err in the, on the side of doing the right thing, because frankly, there are risks either way. And I, I'm one who does believe in something called a conscience. It can't be quantified, I don't think. I don't think it can be measured scientifically. But I know from my own experience and other people, if you do something wrong that doesn't sit well with your conscience, you keep it with you for a long time. Probably the, the person who you transgressed against 
forgot completely about it. It's no big deal to them, but to the person who did something wrong that doesn't fit with their conscience, it's a pretty high price to pay. How can, how can this be taught? You argue that it's never too early to begin teaching intelligent disobedience. What are some simple rules, perhaps, that we can teach our children so that they can make sense of this? What, and what critical role do parents play in producing healthy attitudes toward authority? And that's got to be a tough one. Yes. Well, um, I can answer that, you know, in a number of levels. Let's leave the family for a moment, although that's the foundation, come back to it. Sure. But um, you ask about, um, you know, well, first of all, what mostly happens in in acculturating our youth happens in the school system. It happens preschool um, and then in the school system, uh, you know, something like that, 16 years and then in um, in uh, extracurricular activities like scouting, like sports, etc. And in each of these, there are authority figures, and authority figures are telling them what to do. What I got a bit horrified by when I was doing this research, um, I, I'm not an educator, so I had to rely on educators to point me into uh, the direction how are teachers trained. And it turns out that, you know, some of the uh, emphasis, uh, a huge part of the emphasis in teacher training is in classroom management. Yes. We can understand that because this really classrooms are intolerable. But so much attention is given to classroom management that the the teacher places authority over anything, any other value. That's what's taught in a lot of these. Uh, teacher training mm-hmm. classroom management modules. And um, interestingly enough, they're considered successful if the student internalizes the authority mm. and the authority figure no longer needs to be there. The, te- the student will just do what they know the authority figure requires even when they're not there. Mm. That's scary when you think about it. It kills the spirit. You know what I mean? Because that's how we instill this very deep programming in citizenry on to you know to obey authority um, even when that authority is, 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 is not there. Okay, so what do we do about that? Right. One of the things I've learned from this journey, which you know has taken me into a lot of different places looking at examples, is that it's fairly simple. It's role playing. Hmm. It's appropriate role playing at each age. Uh, you design, it, it, it's what happens in <laughs> training guide dogs, um, but it's also what happens in training uh, hospital staff and, and uh, other staff in critical situations. You give them simple situations and have them act it out and ask them questions. Well, you know, in this situation, would you obey? In this situation, would you not obey? There's one interesting story in, in, in the book where... Um, this woman is trying to have this conversation with very young children, and and she says, you know, is it ever okay to disobey? And they all go, no, no, uh-huh. it's not. Well, then she says, well, what if a stranger tells you to get into a car? Would you do that? Oh, no, we wouldn't. See, see parents have already taught oh, uh, children something about differentiating between what to obey and what not to obey. I think we just need to build on this. It doesn't even have to be a huge program. It's almost like a couple of hours of role play at each age 
that's appropriate developmentally, and we equip students when they are feeling this isn't right on how to take that stand. Interesting. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about an important aspect of democracy. The book is Intelligent Disobedience, Doing Right When What You're Told to Do is Wrong. And our guest today is Ira uh, Chalef. And uh, w- what about, can't it, how can you determine, how can one really determine right and wrong? Is there a universal set of right and wrong? I kind of suspect there is. But what about the, the prospect of each individual acting on his or her own and having some kind of real chaos and anarchy here? And just to bring up a very current uh, uh, question about uh, intelligent disobedience, what about acting on what are alleged to be religious morals? People of some faiths, as we all know, just don't accept homosexuality. Might not they try to use your arguments to justify discrimination, that the law says one thing, but I know it's wrong? Yeah, you're, you're, now you're getting down into the toughest part yeah. of the whole, whole stuff here. That's my job. Um, my publisher uh, was very interested in this as well. It would be so easy if there was a clear, universal hierarchy of values. Wouldn't it? And everybody understood the source of the, <laughs> had agreement on the source of those values and the relative importance of them. We don't, mm-hmm. as a human, as each culture has some variance on it. So this is a tricky subject. Uh, I do believe, like you, that even though we can't quantify it, there, are, there is a certain sense of conscience. There are certain fundamentals uh, regarding human safety, human life, human dignity, that individuals um, sense and most individuals are drawn to. Now, environmental circumstances can kind of uh, beat that out of them. But but I believe that there's a a natural sense there. Now, so one of the things that that the few places that instruct young students in this, um, unfortunately, I found that the main places it's being done is around... Uh, anti-sexual predation, and very young students or children mm-hmm. are being taught to listen to their inner voice. Does this feel right or wrong? Uh-huh. And if it feels wrong, regardless that there's an authority figure in the form of a you know an uncle, a coach, a priest, whatever, oh, yeah. um, to say no, I don't like that. Don't do that. So there is some element of having to rely on the goodness, if you will, of the internal voice. Now, you are then moving into a very, very challenging arena where we can't just kind of agree that it's good to be intelligently disobedient to things we disagree with, but we must obey things we agree with. That's tough. It's a tough one. But I do think that, so when we create the law of the land that there's equality of marriage, etc., that now, if somebody is, is, uh, has a deep conviction about that, they have a couple of choices. One, you know, they can withdraw from those roles in life that require them to violate 
uh, their belief system. That's a reasonable choice on their part. Or they could choose uh, to engage in civil disobedience. And it's not civil disobedience that you or I would want to see happening, but this is a bit like free speech. We can't say free speech is okay one way and not another way. But nevertheless, and those people, as long as they're not harming anyone else, that's the key thing. Not, nobody can harm anybody else in the name of. But um, uh-huh. then as long as they're willing to accept the, uh, the legal consequences, that's their choice. Yeah, it seems that is, uh, I mean, that's a, a standard of free speech, is the, the old saying, your right to throw a punch stops where my nose begins. If it hurts, <laughs> if it hurts somebody else, you can't do it. I think that that's, sounds like intelligent disobedience uh, to me. Now, you know, as you caution your readers, in, in this country, it's easier for some people to disobey than others. People of color, for example, and others who have historically been at least marginalized, if not brutalized and even murdered, when they, you know, sometimes if they disobey authority, it's it's really not easy. And, and, and it's, you know, the system that they live in is so brutalized and, and just one thing after another just reinforces you have to obey. Even if it sucks, even if it's horrible, you have to obey. They, the people who, who live in that kind of situation have a much higher price to pay. Uh, how, how is, I wonder how we can deal with that aside from you know, working on to things that uh, you know, are actual racist practices. Yeah, when the book was getting ready to go to, to press, sort of in the final review, uh, it was about the time that uh, Ferguson, Staten uh-huh. Island, Etc. was mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. And uh, it really pained me. It really no. pained me, but I felt that I absolutely had to put a cautionary note in the book. Um, uh, in our country, you know, particularly to young men of color, but I realized, um, you know, my books tend to get translated into other languages, and I realized that in every culture there's going to be this kind of, you know, um, dominant group and Mm-hmm. Uh, groups that are somewhat uh, uh, oppressed, mm-hmm. and that uh, I, I did need to put this cautionary note in that if you are part of such a group, um, it is not intelligent to disobey in the heated moment. Uh-huh. You really do need to do what parents of of, of color always, you know, tell their children: uh, you just obey, you just obey fully, you, you, no resistance. And then, when you're out of the clutches of the moment, uh, then let's step back and let's get the support we need, the community support, the legal support, etc., to stand up against what was a misuse of authority. That's a very, very good point, just to get out of the heat of the moment, making decisions in the heat of the moment, pretty much always not a good idea. It doesn't generally work out. Now, this brings up a, a person... Some consider a modern-day hero. Others think of as a traitor who should be lined up and shot. Talking about Edward Snowden, who went up against his former boss, the uh, National uh, Security Agency, and the entire U.S. government to do what he strongly felt was right. In your opinion, is he the ultimate representation of intelligent disobedience, or were his actions misdirected? 
Well, I, I, I'm, I'm or maybe I'm, none of the above. I, I'm, I'm not going to choose either one of those. Okay, um, that's fair. Edward Snowden is actually um, a very interesting example of where intelligent disobedience uh, crosses over to civil disobedience. Oh, true. He he knew the law, and he chose to obey it in order uh, to sorry to violate it right. in order to bring attention to what he felt was a fundamental. Uh, undermining of you uh, of American freedoms uh, that the American public and even the American government wasn't fully aware of um, that it was almost you know this subset of the American government mm-hmm. uh, that was con- uh, conducting this. So he made a very very conscious choice, and the now the the reason he doesn't fit the complete classic profile of civil disobedience is because rather than stay and be arrested and, you know, take the consequences, he chose to to flee to somewhere where he felt uh, he could be protected. Now, there's, to the degree I've been able to look into the story, his, his choices are understandable because apparently... Uh, the uh, judicial system under which he would have been tried was so so much of a secret court mm-hmm. that would that would have actually not only not been possible for him to have a fair trial, but it would have uh, defeated the purpose of bringing uh, keeping this in the public attention. So he made these choices, and uh, you know we have this extraordinary situation. Where um, you know the, both uh, the president and the Congress have now changed the law based on what he brought to our attention. Yes. Um, now, whether or not um, you know, the question really is going to come down to uh, the discomfort around where did he choose to locate himself? Um, you know, ultimately in Russia after Hong Kong, and even though it seems like he did everything he could to protect. Um, uh, valid state secrets. You know, there's a big question mark whether or not that really occurred. I think history is going to have to play itself out mm. before we we know the final um, judgment on this. Interesting case, and you know, you talk about how important role playing is in in you know organizations where there's authority, and in schools, it's it's not that complicated to to show and to teach the lesson. And on the other side of that, a lesson that's being taught is that, you know, some people can literally get away with murder. In the past year or so, there's been a spate of police killings of unarmed citizens. In many minds, including mine, they got away with murder. The justice system did what it so often does, shield individuals from responsibility because they are police. And I'm, I'm really concerned that the justice system, as it functions today, is actually a big part of the problem. The message being, you can do what you know is moral wrong and get away with it. How do we deal with that? Well, you know, I'm not sure that uh, I agree that, you know, that's the conscious stance of law enforcement. Uh, I, I think there are, uh, there are other problems that uh, create this terrible, terrible dynamic. And, you know, fortunately, we're in this age of uh, omnipresent cell phones yes, and being able to capture this and bring, and bring it to light. Really? 
but I do think there are some very fundamental issues in terms of police training, um, as, 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 you know, as well uh. as the obvious stereotyping uh, that have to be dealt with. What I would hope happens, you know, I think, I've, obviously I think about these things through the lens of intelligent disobedience. Yes. So, you know, for example, in Ferguson, mm-hmm. um, when whoever it was uh, gave the order to bring the armored police <laughs> uh, uh, personnel carrier into the streets to supposedly quell the unrest. What I would have liked to see is somebody uh, stand up to whoever gave the order and, and said, Sir, um, you know, we, we have a, 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 a program here in this city of community policing that is going to come completely undermine any credibility for our program. Right. And we should not do that. And and then, you know, take it a step further, uh, and I would like to see, and this is part of what I go over in the book, what the research shows, if it's not one lone voice, but if two or three of the that individual's uh, colleagues stood up and said, you know, I agree, I agree with him or her, uh, that's usually enough to, to get the authority figure to reconsider. Um, but let's say the authority figure doesn't reconsider, and that individual feels this is really deeply wrong. Then you know this is where I would hope we go next, where the you know that individual says, uh, "Sir, um, I know that this is going to uh, bring me before a uh, disciplinary hearing. Mm. But I cannot implement that order. If you if you feel the need to implement it, you're going to have to do it. I will not do it." Wow. That does take some courage. It really does. It does. It really does. And and you talk about the importance of, of bystanders. Why are bystanders so important to intelligent disobedience? Yeah. Um, you know, bystanders, uh, we, we're really becoming uh, aware of the, of the power of the bystander. You know, it starts in the schoolyard uh, construct That's of right. bullying. Right. Uh, there's the bully, the victim, and the bystanders, and the victim has the least psychological power. The bystander has more, but if one bystander stands up to the bully um, and nobody comes to the bystander's uh, defense, the bully will turn on the bystander. But again, Hmm. if two or three people stand up, the bullying almost always stops. And, you know, frankly, there is uh, some serious literature that shows that genocide is bullying with the power of the state behind it. So these same dynamics, uh, you know, play up and down uh, the the, the social structure. Uh, What what Stanley Milgram's experiments found was uh, exactly this, that if two or three people stand up against the authority figure, then the person who was administering the shocks realizes, wow, you know, maybe I better not keep doing this. And, uh, and, and, you know, and joins the, uh, the dissenters. So it's a very important dynamic. To understand, you may not be the first person to take a stand, but be very aware that if that person takes a stand and you feel that they're right, have the courage to take that stand with them. That can be the game changer. Wow. So we're coming toward the end of the discussion here. What, this is something that I would think concerns a lot of people, doing the right thing, standing up intelligently to some wrong orders and having 
is the book t- is titled Intelligent Disobedience. What can, of course, people can buy your book. <laughs> what else can, can people do? There's, you mentioned role playing uh, in terms of there's probably a lot to do in terms of, uh, you know, teaching, uh, telling our children. What about, uh, you know, if we as adults see the situation happening where somebody is, you know, like a, in a management situation in a company, have forced to go against what they what they think is right. Uh, what what can can people do? What kind of uh, resources might there be? Well, uh, you know, it does take courage, but then it takes skill. And what I try to do in in both the courageous follower and in, and in, in intelligent disobedience is give people samples of the kinds of language they can use, the kinds of strategy to escalate their stance as as needed. Um, the uh, one of the, and and I, what I would hope happens is that um, companies, uh, you know, for-profit companies as well as government, recognize that um, having people who have the capacity for intelligent disobedience is actually a part of their risk management strategy. Oh, interesting! Because if you get people to voice internally uh, and 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 give them a fair hearing, uh, you know, that will save. A lot of uh, grief, lawsuits, etc. Yeah. Um, the other piece that I do hope happens is that um, I hope that parents with young children uh, get hold of the book, have conversations around it. How can it? Uh, how can they make this happen more in their own families? And how can they uh, bring it to the attention of the educational system so that at an early age we start laying the foundation? for this type of citizenry, discerning citizenry, which is appropriately balances obedience and intelligent disobedience. Interesting. As you were speaking, I was thinking about how, you know, insurance companies could, could save money, uh, you know, by, by having various ways to, to check on it and make sure the wrong thing is not being done. Enough people look in on it. Uh, I would think many large companies in general, you know, instead of just plowing ahead, despite mistakes, if it's encouraged for people to, you know, if they recognize something wrong, to say it, it saves money. I mean, that's often the, the, the best uh, uh, incentive to get people to do things is, is, frankly, just saving money. And saving democracy, you know, our democracy is really, I think, very much threatened. How important do you think, Ira, is developing and practicing intelligent disobedience? How important is that? to keeping democracy alive? I think it's uh, fundamental. It's, it's the long game, if you will. You know, there are a lot of good people trying to do things to uh, correct the situations uh, that are evident right now. And they're always very complex. But yeah. the long game is creating a citizenry that is really equipped at every level of society uh, to uh, not be sheepish in the face of authority, not to be obstructionist in the face of authority, but to be appropriately collaborative, uh, to support the beneficial use of power, and to correct or take a stand against misuses of power. Seems to me that's what democracy is about to a large extent. Participating in it, you got to participate in it. Democracy is not a spectator sport, as been said often again and again, and it's really true. And, and 
it's up to us individuals to, to check in, and there's a lot of uh, potential answers here. The book is Intelligent Disobedience, Doing Right When What You're Told to Do Is Wrong. Its author, our guest, has been Ira Chalif. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, I think this uh, may be able to contribute to uh, having people do the right thing. Dare I have that degree of optimism? Thanks for the conversation, Bert. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It's about getting up and standing up. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Don't give up the fight. Get up, 